You're listening to The 66, the podcast of the Astro Road Church of Christ. I'm Andrew Kingsley. We have the world-famous Drew Kaiser here with us as well. And we are in the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 6 and verse 15 today. And our topic for today is a completed city. And we're going to talk about the physical walls of the city being rebuilt. And we only have one more episode coming out for Nehemiah, so we're drawing near to the end of the book. But for today, we're looking at chapter 6, starting in verse 15, and we're going all the way through chapter 7, and then we're also going to move up to chapter 11 and go through chapter 12 and verse 26. And our main points of outline are as follows. First, the walls are finished, then the walls are guarded, then the walls are filled, and then the walls are dedicated. So it's a nice, neat four-point outline for us for this episode And the first thing that happens is the walls are finished. And if you look in chapter 6 and verse 15 of Nehemiah, it says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. So they finish it pretty quickly, and this month Elul is September or October for us. And so we're five months removed from what happened in chapter 2 with Ezra, or excuse me, with Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. So five months ago, Nehemiah left, now he's here, and the walls get rebuilt in 52 days. Then you can look at the reaction of the people around him in verse 16. When all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So a really interesting reaction from folks. They're seeing, hey, God is with these people. Like we've been talking about the imagery of the city of Jerusalem with the presence of God this whole time. Looks like the presence of God is back. That's a bit of an epilogue on our last episode when we talked about the opposition to the city. You know, it just shows that the best way to stop your enemy is just to show them that they are wrong with mm-hmm. action. You know, mm-hmm. instead of getting all defensive and everything, Nehemiah just finished the wall, and then they stopped talking. Yeah. Yeah, and so the walls, they do get finished. By you know, and they do prove their enemies wrong by this action. It gets done. God's with them. And then we move up to chapter 7, verse 1, uh, and the walls are going to be guarded. And Nehemiah is going to put these guys in verse 2. Uh, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more f- <clears throat> faithful and God-fearing man than many. And you read down in verse 3 towards the end of it, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. And so the city is now guarded, and there's a question that pops up in verse 2 about Hanani and Hananiah. Is that one man, or is it two men? You have the Hanani and Hananiah, but you have uh, Nehemiah using the singular pronoun saying he. Well, we'll talk more about that in our next section. So the walls have been finished, they've been guarded, and now they're going to be filled. Read verse 5 of chapter 7. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. So he's about to figure out how many people he has with him. Then look in the last part of the verse. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. And I found written in it, and then he goes on and lists all the people that came back with Zerubbabel uh, from the ex- from the captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And so he finds this book with the things written in it 
from way back when, uh, the list of lists very similar to Ezra's. And then um, later in chapter, uh, chapter 11, we'll see more on the walls being filled. You know, the reason that he, the, our best guess, we're not exactly sure why this list is included, that you can also see in Ezra chapter 2, but our best guess is that he brought it up to exert pressure on these folks that had gone out to the country, away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been dangerous until Nehemiah led the completion of the wall. So now he's on a campaign like you see in a lot of cities these days that have emptied out. Our, our city here in Birmingham is doing this all the time. Come back to the city. It's safe now. We're building new houses. You can live here and not worry. And one of the things that he does to exert that kind of pressure on the people is to get this old list of their granddaddies and grandmothers who had moved in and had come for the express purpose to live in Jerusalem. They did not move there to live in the countryside. They moved there to live in the holy city. Mm-hmm. But when they got there, perhaps it was um, you know, not safe, and, and so they scattered out. He's trying to bring them all back together. And, and it seems to work, because when you get to chapter 11, there are several volunteers ready to move in. And verse 1 says, The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I don't know if that means that uh, the lottery was taken of volunteers or of all people, and those chosen were blessed by the people for, for doing it. I'm not exactly sure what that means. It, it reads to me like the people you know, were chosen, everybody was included in the lottery, and a tenth were chosen, and then the people blessed them for following through with the commitment to, to go and move into the city. So that's how they handle who is to live. But you notice the leaders, they all set up government right there in the, the capital city, in the city of Jerusalem, as, as they should. Once they get settled in, and chapter 11 chapter 12 give us some lengthy lists of names, and they're all well organized, and much of the organization is structured on the old list that you read in chapter 7 from Ezra 2. After all of that is done, you have a beautiful dedication ceremony in chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. And part of this ceremony involves the walking of the wall. Now, these city walls were huge. Um, They were large enough. You know, you have the example of the city wall of Jericho in Joshua chapter 2 that Rahab the harlot lived in. So if it's a wall that is thick enough for an apartment to be housed in it, that is a big wall. And you'll see them walking uh, abreast in this wall and in large groups. One group is coming clockwise to the, uh, I think, to the to the uh, south. Uh, and I think the clock, I, it doesn't matter. One group is coming counterclockwise, one mm-hmm. is coming clockwise, and they meet together at the area where the temple is. And uh, so that starts, this dedication ceremony starts in chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers 
gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. I didn't practice that, and I should have. And then uh, several other villages. And uh, verse 30 says, The priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then he gets them together for the giving of thanks through this walking of the wall. And one group goes south on the wall towards the Dung Gate, and another group goes north. And they, they meet together at some point. Verse 40 says, After they met, that both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And then he names the priests. And he says, The singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. They had a song leader. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he used a pitch pipe. <laughs> and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I believe that's a good way to, to end our reading of the completion of the wall. When we come back, we're going to dig a little deeper into some of these matters that we skipped over and try to think a little bit about what we've read. Okay, so if you're reading Nehemiah, Chapter 6. And you see the walls are finished on the 5th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Or on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. You might remember that we're 5 months gone from chapter 2. And if you're like me, you have no idea what the Jewish calendar does, what months are which, what number is which. Um... You look in Nehemiah 2, look in verse 1, in the month of Nisan. Now, according to, if you get on Google and you go type in Jewish calendar, it's going to give you Nisan as the first month of the year, uh, which is equivalent to March or April. Now, that's when the Jewish calendar starts. It doesn't start in uh, the winter time like ours does with January. Um, it starts in March or April. And if you look, it says in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 1, it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes. But hold on just a minute. Look at chapter 1 in verse 1. Um, the words of Nehemiah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year. And this is the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So this presents, it looks like it presents a problem, but it doesn't. You can see where it might look like, well, if Nisan is the first month of the year... Now, Chislev is actually the ninth month of the year, according to a Jewish calendar, and that's November, December, somewhere around November, December. So if you want a timeline, it looks like this, or it could be confusing because you have, well, here we are in month nine in chapter one, but in chapter two, we back up all the way to month number one of this 20th year. Well, it looks confusing, and it is confusing until... Uh, you recognize the fact that this 20th year um, is based on King Artaxerxes. It's not based on what the first month of the year is. It's an anniversary of Artaxerxes. Just like uh, if you've been, uh, let's say I've been working here for, I'm in my second year of work here. I started working here on August, I think it was August 12th, 
of 2012. And so my gears for working here are based on August 12th. And every time August 12th rolls around, we're in a new year. I'm in a new year of working in Asheville Road. And so the way that this fits is you can have, and we said that, I believe we said that the um, Nehemiah heads back in 445 B.C. Is it, was mm-hmm. it 444? Yeah. He heads back in 445 B.C. in Nisan. It's the first month of the year. So the first month of the year in 445 B.C., Nehemiah talks to Artaxerxes in chapter 2. Now, we're still in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, uh, but back up um, to 446 B.C., four months prior, in the month of Chislev, or Hislev, however you're supposed to say it, November-December time, Nehemiah hears the bad news. Now, this works because Artaxerxes started reigning in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which, which is Tishri, which will come up again um, in chapter 7. That's where we are in chapter 7. Uh, you read the end of chapter 7 in verse 73. What does it say? It says, And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their town. So this seventh month marks the years of Artaxerxes. It goes from Tishri to Tishri, which is pretty much September-October to the next September-October, whichever, uh, depending on um, how you date it. But it works. It looks confusing, and maybe it didn't to you before until I pointed it out and then confused you. Um, but this is this confused me greatly because I was wondering how we got chapter 1 eight months after chapter 2, but in reality, it it works with Chislev coming first in 446. He hears, and I have this little uh, timeline in front of me. The 20th year of Artaxerxes starts in the Jewish month of Tishri, which is our September-October. And then comes month 8, and then comes month month 9, which is Chislev. You can read in chapter 1 and verse 1, in the month of Chislev. So in Chislev, Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem. And then for the 10th, 11th, and 12th months of the Jewish calendar, Nehemiah spends time in prayer and fasting. And then we get to 445 B.C., the first month of the year, Nisan, which is chapter 2. Nehemiah goes before Artaxerxes, and then he begins his 800-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem. This trip takes about three or four months. So, um, Nisan, the first month of the year, he leaves. In the second, third, and fourth months, he's traveling to Jerusalem. He gets there in the fifth month, and he starts rebuilding on the third day of that month. And then, that gets us to chapter 6 and verse 15, where they finish the wall in the month of Elul in 52 days. This was probably really hard to, uh, to get just listening to it, so maybe we'll put this timeline up in the notes section so it makes sense. I know it's probably mm-hmm. hard to keep track of it while I'm saying it. Yeah, it's a good idea to put it up on the website. Yeah, that way you can see it, because it makes more sense. It makes it nice and neat, and it looks good. Um, but either way, we're starting in 446 and ending in 445, the month of Elul. Yeah, everything happens relatively quickly. And the reason that we're doing this, I, it may seem to some of you to be a little dull. Uh, well, it is dull, but yeah, we don't want... One of the things that we want to accomplish in this podcast is to reflect the inspiration of the Bible and the credibility of the Bible as... You know, book of history. It wasn't written for historical purposes, but if it is inspired, then it has to be historically accurate, 
and accurate in every other way because inspiration produces inerrant, infallible scriptures. And so somebody might be reading Nehemiah and see and know something or Google the Jewish calendar and see that Kislev that's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1 is uh, in November and Mm -hmm. that Nisan or Nisan in chapter 2, verse 1 is in March and April, and yet Nehemiah says both of them are in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and they may lose their faith over something like that, or be mm-hmm. their faith may be challenged by something like that. And so we've worked out that, you know, what we're counting time by two different records. One is mm-hmm. the Jewish calendar, and the other are the anniversaries of Artaxerxes' reign. Mm-hmm. And so, Artaxerxes, what did you say? He started in September? He started in September, the Jewish so month of he, history. So he starts, and we're also, we've got a third calendar in our head, which is our own calendar. Yeah. So we've got Artaxerxes, he's starting in September, we're starting in January. The Jews, they start in March, April. So it's really easy. And so this is a way to explain all of the discrepancies, in the, in, and that's why we're thinking about this. We're not thinking about it because it really gives us any insight into the story of Nehemiah or the message of Nehemiah. But overall, it is important to the study of the Bible in that it preserves the inspiration of the Bible and our faith in it as credible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it wasn't a hang-up for me because I have faith that Nehemiah was a pretty smart guy. Yeah. And I don't see a guy from one chapter to the next already making a mistake in terms oh, of... Yeah. It's such a big deal. I just think, well, there has to be an explanation. Mm-hmm. But somebody else may jump on that and say, hey, here, right here, they, the Bible can't even get it right from Nehemiah chapter 1 to Nehemiah chapter 2. Yeah, I've caught them. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And it's not as simple as that. So we'll put that up on the 66.net under uh, this particular podcast, and you can look at the chart if you're interested in that kind of thing. If you're mm-hmm. not, then maybe you'll be interested in another matter. Yeah, because uh, we wanted to also bring up the three lists that we have mentioned today. That was another thing that perplexed us a little, and we thought maybe you might be confused. And the first one is in chapter seven, verse five, the first part of verse five, where Nehemiah says that God put it on his heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. In other words, God put it on his heart to take a census. Just like in this country, every 10 years, the United States takes a census. They want to know what people are living in this country, how many, and what kind of people. And that's what Nehemiah wanted to know because the problem in chapter 7, verse 4, was that the city was wide and large, but there weren't many people living in it. And he wanted some people living in the city. So God put it on his heart to take a census. That's the first list. Now, the second list is in chapter 7, verse 5, the end part of verse 5, all the way down to the end of chapter 7, which is this list that you see first in Ezra chapter 2, the old list that uh, was of the people who originally came over to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity in 536 B.C. Now, when you here's another Bible contradiction deal. When you compare the list in Ezra 2... With the list in Nehemiah 7, there are some discrepancies. So you got to ask yourself, is that a reflection on the inspiration of the Bible, or is there something else going on here? Now me, again, Ezra and Nehemiah knew one another. Nehemiah was aware of Ezra chapter 2. 
I don't think he would have blundered that badly and, and you know, changed the list. Mm-hmm. I think what we have here is a simple explanation that Ezra 2 is a list compiled in Babylon of whom Ezra expected to, or who Zerubbabel, rather, this list was made before Ezra was born, mm-hmm. Zerubbabel expected to make the journey over and settle in Jerusalem or Judea. What you have in Nehemiah chapter 7 is probably an updated list after the time of Ezra 2 of who actually made the journey and got there and settled in the land. Mm -hmm. So we have an updated list in Nehemiah chapter 7, which is almost identical to Ezra chapter 2, but not exactly the same. That's the second list that you have. The third list that you have is in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. This is the list of those who were chosen by lottery to settle in the city of Jerusalem, move out of their homes in the countryside, and settle in the city of Jerusalem. Now, to summarize it, you have, here are the three lists. Not in the order they appear in the book, but in the order that they come. First of all, you have Ezra chapter 7, which is an updated list of the folks who moved to Judea in 536 B.C., 89 years before the current events. And Nehemiah used this, and we said this in the last section, he used this list to kind of motivate the people then living to come back to Jerusalem and settle like their forefathers had planned to. Mm-hmm. But when their, why didn't their forefathers do it? Because the city was not defensible. The walls were breached, and it was dangerous to live in the city. But now it's safe. And Nehemiah is reminding them about their grandfathers and the grandmothers who had come over. That's the first list, chronologically speaking. Mm-hmm. The second list we don't have. It's the list mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5a, first part of the verse. The census. We know that God put it in his heart to take a census, and we believe that he took the census and organized it according to the list that Ezra had in Ezra 2, kind of used the same structure, but it's not recorded for us. And that's fine with most people because we don't like reading dry, long lists of names. But that's a second list that's mentioned but not given. The third list, chronologically speaking, is the one in chapters 11 and 12, which is the list of the tenth of the people chosen by lottery that actually came and settled in the city of Jerusalem. Now that helps me just kind of understand you know, what's going on in the structure of all those lists and genealogies in the book of Nehemiah. Yeah, and it lets you know why they're all in there, too. And there's uh, one other thing I want to point out back from chapter 7 we said we'd come back to. Uh, that's verse 2 of chapter 7. Nehemiah says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Uh, the question here is, is this one guy or is this two different guys? Obviously, the he makes it look like one guy, but the fact that there's two names mentioned looks like it's two different guys. So we have conflicting things here. Uh, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, I think it's verse 2. It is verse 2. Uh, look, there's that name, Hanani, again. Mm-hmm. One of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. Hanani is the guy that told Nehemiah there's the people in Jerusalem are in, I think, it's great trouble and shame. Yeah, verse 3. And this guy is a traveler, isn't he? I, mean, I guess he, so. He, so when we're first introduced to him, he's coming from Jerusalem to Persia, which we said that's a four or five month trip. Mm-hmm. And then he goes back with Nehemiah, evidently, to Jerusalem again. Mm-hmm. 
So he must have hopped hopped on with him and came road back. weary by now. Yeah. And so he is, and apparently Nehemiah's got a lot of respect for him. He says he's more faithful and God fearing than many. Puts him in charge. Um, now there's well, if that it applies to Hanani, mm-hmm. which we're not sure if this is one guy or two guys. Mm-hmm. And there's two options here uh, that I think are credible. The first option is that it's one guy, and the singular pronoun seems to indicate that. Furthermore, the names themselves are identical. If you look in uh, the Septuagint, which is which I don't know why you'd ever need to in case of something like this, uh, but it is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible. So you can see some things. It helps because you see how they translate well, you see how the Greeks did it, and you can make more sense of it in English because uh, the two different languages have different nuances. Well, the Greek uses the exact same name. There's not the little difference that we have in English, and there's not the little difference that there is in Hebrew. It's the exact same name. And they mean the same thing. Um, in Hebrew, Hanani comes from, or it, it just means grace, favor, kindness. And Hananiah has got an ending on there that you are probably familiar with. It's Yah, which is Yahweh. So Hananiah means gracious is Yahweh or the grace of Yahweh. The two names are the identical, and he uses the singular pronoun. So there's a pretty good case that it's one guy. But on the flip side... There's a pretty decent case that it's two guys. Uh, you can have it. You can consider the way if you have an NIV in front of you, or if you have a, a Young's Literal translation in front of you. NIV says this: I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hanani, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and fear God more than most people do. Then, if you read Young's Literal, which is uh, trying to be erring on the side of I guess, bad English for the sake mm-hmm. of good Hebrew. Um, and I charge Hanani, my brother, comma, and Hanani, head of the palace, comma, concerning Jerusalem, for he is a man of truth and fearing God above many. So it's kind of the idea, and Hebrew does this a few times. They'll just insert this parenthetical right in there and then pick up right Without where they parentheses. were. Yeah, and they'll yeah. pick up right where they were like they never even mentioned it. For example, if you're reading, um, if you're reading from the NIV, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani because he was a man of integrity and fear God more than most people do. That leaves out the extra little snippet about Hanani. So it yeah. could be the fact that it per could the be Jewish instead language, of and it should read or yeah, as if to say he's also known as I yeah. put in charge of my brother Hanani or Hananiah. Yeah, uh, that uh, works. The governor of the castle charge over. The, or it could be that uh, these are two guys, his brother Hananiah, of whom he says little else, mm-hmm. and this other guy, Hananiah, who, number one, is governor of the castle, and number two, is a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Mm-hmm. But, um, the way that... you know, our, somebody's put over charge of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. somebody's put in charge of Jerusalem... And it's a bit confusing if it's two people. Are they to rule together as partners? Mm-hmm. Um, is one the servant of the other? You, you know, you, it's kind of yeah. hard to understand if it's two people. Yeah. So it's either it's either one guy or it's two guys. Now, I'm not 100% sure which one it is. I'm not sure that it's really going to matter it do, yeah, all that much It doesn't much matter because nothing else is said. Yeah. That's it. So that's all we're going to say about it. It could be one. 
It could be two, just depending on what level of a Hebrew scholar you are is going to depend on whether or not you can figure that out. And uh, Yeah, so if you don't care, <laughs> you're not a Hebrew scholar. Yeah, true. And uh, we are not Hebrew scholars, so that's, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, it's either one or it's two. Great. Next thing. Next item. Hey, I do care about Josephus. I think okay. it's really interesting to compare the Jewish historian Josephus, non-inspired source, to biblical history. So many times he elaborates on it. Sometimes he contradicts it. And this is a case where we have an, an elaboration and a contradiction. Josephus evidently was a fan of Nehemiah. He says some really great things about him in Antiquities, which is one of his works. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that he says is that instead of taking 52 days, it took uh, Nehemiah two years and four months to rebuild the wall. So that's not all that flattering compared to the 52-day mark. I, of course, go with what the Bible says over what Josephus said for two reasons. Number one, the Bible's inspired, and that's my belief. But even historically speaking, Nehemiah is right there on the events, and Josephus is writing much later um, you know, um, after the time of Jesus, because mm-hmm. it, Josephus also mentions the death of Jesus in his history. So this is, you know, he was writing 500 years after Nehemiah. How did he know exactly you know, how long it took to rebuild the wall? Nehemiah knew better than he. Yeah. But I like what he says about the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem and what Nehemiah did in order to get that done. Listen to this section from Antiquities. When Nehemiah saw that the city was thin of people, he exhorted the priests and the Levites that they would leave the country and remove themselves to the city and there continue, and he built them houses at his own expense. And he commanded that part of the people who were employed in cultivating the land to bring the tithes of their fruits to Jerusalem, that the priests and Levites, having whereof they might live perpetually, might not leave the divine worship, who willing hearken to the constitutions of Nehemiah, by which means the city of Jerusalem came to be fuller of people than it was before. So that problem introduced in chapter 7, verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Mm -hmm. Josephus kind of fills in the cracks for us a little bit and tells us that some houses were rebuilt, and they were rebuilt at Nehemiah's own expense. And at the end of the story... There were more people in it than before. The city was fuller of people than it was before. Yeah. The walls are filled. application that we want to make with Nehemiah 7, 6, 7, 11, and 12 is the idea of the physical walls that God puts in our lives. In other words, the physical protections, the defenses that we have, the material provisions, if you want to look at it that way, that God puts in our lives. And there's a lot of great applications to that end. You know, for the city of Jerusalem, this was absolutely essential, just as essential, you might say, as Ezra's reforms, which were ethical in nature, Zerubbabel's reforms, which were religious in nature. You need more than just religious structure and ethical structure. You have to have civil structure as well, protection. 
And we need that as well today. It's not wrong to pray to God that your children will receive a good education or that you'll have a roof over your head or that you'll have food on your table or what else? All the many things that your country will continue to be free and that yeah. you, you know, you'll be able to pay your bills and all of those things that we concern about. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to worry about those things. But he doesn't say they don't matter. What he says is, if you prioritize and put God first, all of those things will be added to you. And Nehemiah tells us how that happens. And you see a man who believes that principle and practices it in Nehemiah chapters 6 and following. So, a few points that I jotted down here for us to talk about. First of all, I think it's important to point out that material protections are accomplished with the help of God. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. When the wall is completed, the enemies hear of it, and they're afraid, and their pride and all that falls. They, they fall in their esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now, how did that happen? You know, there are no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. Not like you read about in the book of Exodus, for example, or in one of the gospel accounts. So in Exodus, God delivers the people through ten plagues, dividing the Red Sea. They get out of the wilderness. They don't have any food. Manna rains down from heaven. Quail falls from heaven. You have all these miraculous events. And that's how people tend to think that God works all the time. But most of the time, miracles are kept at a minimum while God helps in a non-miraculous way people accomplish what they need to accomplish in their lives. And that's how He brings protection to their lives and the walls that we need, the shelter that we need in our lives. And there's a word for this, and the word is providence. And you can see in that the root word provide. Providence means God provides in a non-miraculous way. And if you have a hard time understanding that concept, let me compare two events, both of them births, one by providence, one by miracle. The miraculous example is Jesus. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, God brought Jesus into the world, and nobody denies that. That was uh, perhaps answered prayer. We don't know. Maybe Mary was praying for a child. But um, at any rate, God was behind the event. Obviously, Jesus' birth came by a miracle. That is, it was supernatural. It didn't come by natural means. She did not conceive the child in the usual way. Mm -hmm. Scientifically, cannot be explained. Now, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and there you have the example of the birth of the, the prophet and judge Samuel. Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. She couldn't have a child dealing with infertility, and she struggled with it greatly. And her husband tried to comfort her, but she couldn't be comforted. And she went to the tabernacle, and she prayed. And she prayed so fervently that Eli, the judge at the time, thought she was drunk because she was doing this thing where she was moving her lips, but she wasn't making a sound. I don't know why his first thought was that she was drunk, but that's what he thought. He was wrong. She said, no, I'm praying. And he, he blessed her for that, and soon she became pregnant, and she bore a son, and his name was Samuel. He's a very important guy. Now, would anybody question that Samuel came as a gift from God, as a provision from God? I don't think anybody would, because it's clear that Hannah prayed, but did she conceive Samuel the way that 
everybody conceives children in the natural way today. Yes. You know, she was not a virgin. She was married to a husband. They had a child together. That was God providing something, a child in this case, by providence. Mm -hmm. So that's a good way to define it. It's a non-miraculous way that God acts in our lives. Yeah, and I think there's something to the reaction of the people. Uh, They're not intimidated, they're not afraid of the Jews until the walls get finished. Mm -hmm. And because when the walls get finished, they know that there's something else going on here. You know, they know that it's not, that they, in their eyes, this God is back with them. And it reminds me of Joshua in chapter 2 when uh, Rahab hides the spies. And she says to him in verse 9 of uh, Joshua 2, I know the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? Verse 10, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Um, and she keeps talking about how their hearts have melted and they're so afraid. Because, look in verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there's no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So, even these people that are not, what I think is interesting is even these people that are not a part of the nation of Israel, they're not a part of God's people, they recognize that God is the true God because of the provisions he gives for his people. God's people get their stuff done because God is behind them. The other people do not because they don't have God with them. The only They have their own supposed lowercase g gods, but the mm-hmm. one true God is not on their side. Their things or their, Ultimately, their efforts fail, and gods prevail. So I think it's very interesting to note the, the material provisions that we get. Um, and I think this is why it's so closely connected to faith, uh, certainly with the Israelite people. Uh, you can have faith that God is going to provide for you. Just look at all these things that we're reading here in Ezra and Nehemiah. God provided for Ezra. God provided for Nehemiah. The walls got built because God was on their side. Whatever issues are going on with us, Today, certainly God is able to provide for us, and not just in a spiritual way, but in a very physical way. You know, have faith that if your if your bank account's running out of money, God is there with you. God is there for you. Something is going to happen uh, to where you'll be taken care of. You brought up a great example because there, the the pagans believed in God because of a miracle. Mm-hmm. They had heard about. I, she mentioned the Red Sea in particular. Yeah. In Nehemiah, they believe in God because of providence, but the reactions are no different. Mm-hmm. They're afraid. They are fully convinced. And in that example, the pagans do more than a lot of people do today, because a lot of people today just cannot think of God working in a non-miraculous way. It has to be a miracle. Or it's not God. And so they start seeing miracles. They want God in their lives so much that they make everything into a miracle. And they see miracles all around, and they're shocked to hear that the Bible teaches, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but the Bible teaches that the miraculous age has ceased. You can go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, and other ideas and implications 
to get that, and that we'll save that for a podcast on First Corinthians mm-hmm. whenever we get to that in the future. But um, you know, just because it didn't come in a miraculous way, that doesn't mean God's not behind it. When we get to the Book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned one time. But you have Mordecai saying, "Maybe, perhaps, you've come to the throne for such a time as this." Mm-hmm. That Esther, this is why you are here as queen. What did he mean by that? He meant God naturally, through events in a mysterious way, used the laws of nature to bring her to that point to save her people. Yeah. Now let's get to another um, application regarding the material provisions that God brings in our lives. And that is that we have a share in that as well. And this also relates to the non-miraculous nature of the way God works in our lives today. I like what Nehemiah says in chapter 7, verse 5. He said, Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Now, somebody may say, though, there's a miracle. You know, maybe, but maybe Nehemiah is still talking about providence, that he had this idea, and God is in control of all things and events or whatever. Something led him to think of this need, a census of the people, as a way to start getting people to move back into Jerusalem again. But the application that we make today is that, you know, there was something he needed to do in order to receive that protection that they needed to get the walls filled, Mm -hmm. to put people inside the walls, and to bring that protection. You know, Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer in Matthew 6, Give us this day our daily bread. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, how does God answer that prayer? Does manna rain from heaven? If your children are starving and you pray, give us this day our daily bread, does that mean that you should expect you know, a loaf of bread to drop out of the sky? Or the five loaves and two fish to be repeated in your case? Something else like that. No. God starts answering that prayer by putting power in the seed by farmers planting it in the ground, by empowering the soil to enrich the seed, by empowering the sun to give life to the seed, by empowering the rain to give moisture to the seed, Mm -hmm. by the seed growing into grain, by the grain being harvested by somebody, Mm -hmm. processed by somebody, sold by somebody, by money coming into your pocket through natural means. There's a lot of processes that are natural, and the reason we're not amazed by those, but we're amazed by miracles, is because they happen every day. That is the only difference between a miracle and a non-miracle, is that miracles only happen occasionally, rarely, Mm -hmm. and providence happens every day. But think about it. Is it any less wondrous that you can put a dead piece of organic matter in soil And it can be grown into food that feeds the body. Is that any less amazing than Jesus being born of a virgin? Yeah. It's just an arbitrary difference. Mm -hmm. God says, well, these are the kinds of things that I'm going to make happen every day. And these are the kinds of things that I'm going to make exceptions of in order to confirm that I'm behind this. Mm -hmm. But because I make this happen every day, People recognize that I'm behind this over here, rare occurrence, 
because only I can change what I do every day. Yeah. And I think that's not any less amazing. Yeah. And I definitely think that God uses everyday things like that in such a way that, you know, there is providence involved, just like Mm -hmm. you said. Um, And I don't, you know, and I, I think it does require much more thought than we give it. You know, the idea of praying for our daily bread. Well, how exactly are we going to get it? Um, you know, I, I do think God provides all of those things as long as, to go back to what you said to open off our application section here, as long as we are seeking first God and his kingdom, then all of those things are going to follow for whatever reason whether it be through providence or whatever means they come, they're coming. And do you know why? Because if we put God first, Mm -hmm. then when we have a responsibility, part of putting God first and living according to righteousness is doing our responsibility, doing our duty, Mm -hmm. doing what is right. That's what righteousness is. Seeking first righteousness, all is righteousness, is doing what's right. And if you got kids who are starving and you have an opportunity to work, then you're going to work. Mm-hmm. You're not going to keep praying and sitting still and waiting on things, somebody to do something for you. You're going to get to work. You're going to be a responsible person. Yeah. And there's a part of, definitely a part of following after God is helping out those who are in need. And that means, yeah. you know, if you are trying to live for God, you're trying to do what you can you're not trying to make money so that you can just have a large bank account. You're trying to make money so that you can, really a big part of what you do is help other people. Same way with food. If you're getting a bunch of food, you can use that to help other people. It reminds me of something, and I don't want to steal your thunder for this Sunday because I know you're about to preach on this, but Ephesians chapter 4 and verse uh, 28. This is Paul's kind of giving them some uh, commands here about how to live a Christian life. Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And it's interesting what he says next. He says, So that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. It doesn't say, Let the thief no longer steal, and let him work, doing honest work with his own hands, so he can can pay his own bills, and so he can be self-sufficient, and so Mm -hmm. nobody has to worry about him. So he can get rich. Yeah, it says, So that he may share. Yeah. yeah, so that he can share with anyone else who's in need. So following God's putting him first, you're going to take every opportunity you can to make sure the people around you are taken care of. Yeah, and even more than that, if you are seeking God first in all his righteousness, you're not going to associate with wicked people who are full of selfishness and hatred, mm-hmm. who will steal your goods the people you're going to be associating with, and you're not going to be out there on your own either. Mm-hmm. You're going to be associating with God's people who take care of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, in Acts chapter 4, you read about the early church, and there wasn't anybody in need among the early church, despite the fact that Judea was suffering from a terrible uh, famine at the time, and there was a lot of uh, people who were hungry. And then you read later in Paul's epistles about this collection the Gentiles are taking up on behalf of the saints in Jerusalem and sharing what they had like you're talking about. When you're among God's people, you don't go hungry. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example. Now, is it any less amazing just because part of the process was Nehemiah 
thinking of a census and using his and that God used his leadership skills to move people into Jerusalem. Hey, this was a city destroyed not many years prior, just you know, 150 years beforehand, by Babylon. Destroyed. The temple was gone. The walls laid flat. And now there's walls standing around it and people living in it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's not any less amazing just because God chose a natural way to provide versus a miraculous way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can, want to move on to another one? Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, because God does that and people recognize God does that, these material defenses in our lives, these physical walls, are called holy. Look at uh, how many times the city is called holy. In chapter 11, verse 1, we read that, um, that the lottery, the lots were cast, to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. And in chapter 11, verse 18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. And then finally in chapter 12, verse 30, we read that the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the wall is purified. That means it's made holy. The gates, the people, and the Levites, everything is holy. And the reason why that is, why it's set apart and consecrated, is because it had been provided by God. And this calling it holy is a way of recognizing where it came from. Now, we take a lot of things for granted, and this kind of works into my next little point here, the final point, too, so I don't want to get too heavy into this, but we take a lot of things for granted and treat them, abuse them, and uh, if we had this perspective that God gives it to me, James mm-hmm. one seventeen, that all good things come from the Father of lights, mm-hmm. that all good things come from Him, if we had that perspective, then we would treat them as holy. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't want to say all things are sacred, you know, in the way that the church, for example, is sacred, or in the way that mm-hmm. God himself is sacred, in the way that we are saints. But, you know, we should be thankful for every little thing in our life, which that, let me just go ahead and get to the last point, which is about being grateful. Mm-hmm. In the end, when you have this perspective, that even my material protections, and in the next episode, we're going to close Nehemiah with the idea of spiritual walls. But in this episode, it's the physical walls that we're talking about. These physical walls of the city of Jerusalem and these physical walls in my life, the defenses, the gifts, the answered prayer, all of those things are from God. I ought to be a thankful person. And that is the message of Nehemiah. Chapter 12, verse 31. I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Chapter 12, verse 40. Both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And then verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That worship is the result of gratitude, and that gratitude was the result of a recognition that it was God who, made, who helped them build the walls. They had not done it by their own strength. They could not have done it by their own strength, and it didn't matter that it didn't come through a miraculous way. It was just as much God's work, and they gave thanks for that. And gratitude, boy, it fixes a lot of things. Yeah. You know, if you're struggling with self-pity, gratitude is the answer. 
If you're struggling with uh, selfishness, gratitude is the remedy. And, uh, you know, we become better people, more joyful people, when we're grateful. Um, When we're selfish and stingy and independent, we think that we did it all, we're miserable people. So we need to be grateful. Yeah, I want to... I think both of these points, uh, these last two that you've made, um, that the things that God provides for us are holy and that we should be grateful for them. I think the one thing that God has provided for us that we do not recognize as holy and that we are not grateful for the most is the church. And I don't mean this building that you come to, you know, and I, it's hard to get the right word across because when you say church, everybody is thinking building. I'm not talking about the building. I mean, you ought to be grateful for that. But I'm talking about the people. You know, your sermon series right now is on the church of Christ. We're talking about the body of Christ, the people. What are we called to be? We're called to be holy. How does God do his work on... We're talking about providence. How does God make sure that all the hungry kids are being fed? How does God make sure that all the people that are, you know, in these horrible situations, how does he make sure that they are getting the support they need? Well, he's doing it through us. He's doing it through Christ, through the body of Christ. That's us. And so that puts a lot of responsibility on our shoulders, first of all, to be, and we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be something different. Now, me sitting here, we have VBS tonight. If I'm sitting here in VBS tonight, uh, or at church Wednesday night, church Sunday morning, I can guarantee you there's going to be there will be so many people at this church that are sitting here thinking, and at every church across the nation, they're going to be thinking about how so and so in the church isn't doing this, or about how so and so in the church isn't doing that, or what they've done to me, and what you know this other person's done to me, and well this other person said this, can you believe what that person's wearing, and all this kind of junk. We're not recognizing, hey. One of the, you mentioned earlier, you don't go hungry if you're part of the people of God. You're praying for your daily bread, you don't have any money, where do you think your bread is going to come from? The people at church. It might come from the church's bank account, it might come from a member of the church's bank account, but that's where it's coming from. Those people are the providence of God for you. They're your supports. That's what's going to, that's what's going to get you what you need, and I think it's very, I guess it would change a lot of people's outlook, including mine, if you're thinking about the other people at this church as holy people set apart by God for the purpose of doing good works, which we read about, what you preached about in Ephesians, is that chapter 2 or 3, set apart for good works, I can't remember. Oh, chapter 2, 10. Yeah, you're... Ephesians 2, verse 10. Yeah, he says you're basically handcrafted. Yeah, he says... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So I think, number one, we need to be recognizing that the other people that you come into contact with, uh, when you go to the building for worship, those people are holy. They are set apart by God. They're holy. You treat them with respect, and you treat them with honor. Uh, From Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, talks about, I believe it's verse 9 that says, Outdo one another uh, in showing honor. Uh, honor one another above yourselves is another translation of it. Um, so number one, recognize they're holy. Number two, actually appreciate them. Don't take them for granted. And I think those two things are caught up in one another. 
mm-hmm. if you're recognizing the fact that the person sitting across from you at church who may be, um, yeah, I don't know what little thing they could have done to, to bother you this week. You know, maybe they didn't say hey to you when you walked in the door. Uh, or maybe, too much perfume. Yeah. Aggravated my allergies. Yeah. Or maybe their kids being too loud. <laughs> yeah. We got a few kids here. Heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. We got a few kids here. Maybe their kids being mm-hmm. too loud. And I think recognizing the fact that, hey, that person is, is that's what God's using to get his will done on the earth today. And me too. And that's going to have a lot to do with your reaction to them. And, you know, if, if they're doing something you don't particularly like, that's going to make a big difference on the way that you approach them, what you say to them, what you do, how you talk about them to other people, which is a whole different topic altogether. Uh, but I think there are a lot of small problems in the church that turn into huge problems, like you know, such as gossiping and all these different things, uh, just little things uh, evolving into just full-blown uh, quarrels that split a church, those things don't happen if you are recognizing that those other people in the church are holy, that they are that they are part of God's physical provision for you. They are a part of your physical walls. Now, sure, they help with your spiritual walls as well, but they're a part of your physical walls. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as uh, two are better than one. You can mm-hmm. break ten. You can break one popsicle stick. And you can't break one hundred. That's physical. Um, and I think if we could just find it somehow in our hearts to recognize this this is what the church is intended for. This is what it is. It's not a building. It's the people that are in here. You know, I think we would solve a lot of, and that's my little rant about, yeah. I think, how we could solve a lot of our little issues that come up in churches. You're right. You're right. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of The 66. If you want to check us out online, Look us up at the66.net. We're working on getting that iTunes feed going. We applied for it a long time ago, weeks ago. And uh, we will let you know as soon as it is available because that will make it even easier for you to subscribe to the podcast and get it downloaded automatically to your phone or your mobile device, whatever it is that you use. We'd love to hear feedback. We don't have any questions to answer today, but maybe you have a question for us or a comment. We... If it's a good comment, uh, we'll read it mm-hmm. on on the podcast. If it's a bad one, we might read it if it's funny. Yeah. But uh, if you're going to send us a criticism, it needs to be clever enough for us to, to read it on the air. Uh, you can send your feedback to akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Uh, this is a lot of fun for us. We hope that it's fun for you. So we'll see you next time on The 66. Mm-hmm.